0: Hello and welcome to The Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. Jonathan Rauch was a revelation for me when I first began to read him. I am embarrassed to say I really didn't discover his books until a a year or two ago when I came upon Kindly Inquisitors, his 1993 book, uh, uh, the full title is Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, which presented an incredibly prescient picture of a a situation that was emerging then, as he recognized, but which has come into full fore now, where ideology-based thinking has replaced uh, inquiry-based, open inquiry, free inquiry, free discussion, not just in the public arena, but even in academia. And in that book, he discusses many things, including the nature of science, uh, a, a topic which he then picks up on and discusses beautifully in his more recent book, which we spent a lot of time Um, during our dialogue discussing the new book was The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, which came out a year or two ago. But he presents a picture of science as a social activity, required to be a social activity because it only progresses because of the confrontation of ideas, your willingness to present ideas to be confronted by others who question your ideas. Uh, in an important way in order to push forward the search for knowledge and to get to the point where we understand the universe as it really is rather than the universe as we want it to be and that the current notion that ideas cannot be subject to attack is an anathema to that whole to that whole process uh, he discusses much more than that and the, our dialogue together was was uh, enlightening for me, just as his books were. As a scientist, I really think my understanding of the nature of science as a social process was was changed and raised by 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 reading Jonathan. He's an incredibly pleasant and relaxed thinker, and we discussed a wide variety of topics related to to his work. I he, he's his history is as a journalist, and I thought he was trained as an economist at Yale, but no, in fact, his training was more in philosophy, and that's clear. The philosophical background of much of his discussion is also equally enlightening. So I hope you'll enjoy this podcast, and it will put what's happening now, a current conundrum in higher education, government, and the media, that we need to address, is put in, in, in global perspective, and, and we understand how crucially tied together the nature of science and the nature of democracy itself are, which I think is a very important issue which he raises. So I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did, and I hope you are enlightened as much as I have been by my uh, uh, meeting and learning uh, from him. Whether you watch this podcast on the YouTube channel, in which case I hope you'll subscribe to it, or whether you watch it on our Substack channel. Uh I hope I hope you'll subscribe to that in particular. The podcast is part of a nonprofit foundation as you know, the Origins Project Foundation, and your subscriptions, your paid subscriptions to Substack will not only allow you to see this in an ad-free way, but will provide funds that are necessary for the foundation to help keep the podcast and its other activities going. So I hope you'll consider subscribing to that. Either way, I hope you enjoy this discussion with Jonathan Rauch as much as I did. Well, Jonathan Rauch, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have you here virtually to talk to. I am a huge fan of yours.
1: Uh, It's mutual and second only to transporting to see you which according to the physics of star
0: trek would require
1: more energy than exists in the universe we will have to settle for zoom
0: yeah that's right well i you know and now my as you've gone even up further in my esteem but i the fact that you know the physics of star trek makes you a truly renaissance man i'm old enough to remember watching it when it was new yeah that's right but uh, uh but knowing knowing that the transporter unfortunately require more energy is is something that Many, many diehard fans, Star Trek fans, do not know. Um, I want to get to... In fact, I'm interested. I'll get to this in a second. Just so you know, one of my questions will come down to why are not you not a scientist? But we'll get there. Um, I have to say, um, I, I want to talk about a number of our ideas which were prescient in, at the time they were written and, and brilliant. And, and I don't want to puff you up too much, but... but um, oh, go fo- ahead. Okay, go, go ahead. It. What the heck? Um, I, I want to talk about t- two of your books, Condé kind of Inquisitors and, and Constitutional Knowledge, although I'll focus on Condé kind of Inquisitors because it is perfect. And by that, I mean there are two books I know I can think of where um, i be- it's like the Mozart symphony where every any note you remove is going to... Where I i just felt in reading it, not just that I agreed with it, but boy, this is stated perfectly. Hey, this is an insight i I didn't realize I should have had and the only other book that I that 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 I remember thinking that about in in recent times was a book that actually caused me. I wrote the author and uh, Christopher Hitchens, and that led to Christopher and I becoming friends when I taught his book um, "God Is Not Great," where I basically said there, there's not a word that should be removed from that book, and I feel that way about about the Inquisitor. So I think I've let my bias be clear um, at the beginning, but I want to go back. This is an Origins podcast, and um, I'm intrigued by your background, which I don't know much about except for the Yale University part, which is interesting, and I, I taught at Yale for, for almost a decade, uh, but, but, but after you were there, and, um, and experienced a variety of interesting uh, phenomena there, and I, I, I want to know, how, in some sense, how it's affected your, your thinking, but I want to go to your background before that. Where, what did your parents do?
1: My father was a lawyer. My mother was a teacher until kids were born, and then she became a, a mom. It was a troubled and turbulent family in the 60s. I was born in 1960. I tell people I was born canceled because I knew from a very young age that I was different from most people. Um, I didn't know the words for it, but I knew I was
0: Jewish and thus an outsider to the mainstream religion. I knew you I could born not- in. Let's see you were, you, were, you live grew up in Phoenix which is doesn't have a large Jewish population. I mean if you'd born in New York saying you're Jewish you might not feel like Yeah, public. yeah,
1: my father actually moved to Phoenix because in the early 50s uh, he he couldn't get a job in New York because there were quotas on the Jews in law firms. Oh wow. In the big law firms. He graduated from Yale Law School but not in the top half of the class, so he went across the country to find opportunity in in the West and set up a law practice i was born in 1960 wow. um so yeah we were jews there was this there was a tight very functional jewish community there mm-hmm. i went to religious school but i knew from very early age that i could not believe in god uh, mm-hmm. some people most people have that gene i did not even I was a kid, and I thought it was childish to believe in, you know, some creator in the sky who cares about well, us and works it is magic. Childish. It is childish. You were just insightful. <laughs> well, and then I also, although it was many, it was, you know, it took me till age 25 to acknowledge in full that I was homosexual. I knew that I wasn't straight and that I was very different.
0: Even so very early, a, 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 early as a young man? As a young child, when, when did you first sort of real think of, well, it's, I don't want to focus on this much, but it's intriguing to me, and it might be relevant to some of the stuff. Well, it talking.
1: inflects kindly inquisitors, as you know, yeah. so yeah. it's not yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. So around age five, age, it must have been five because we were still in the old house before we, we moved. I fell in love with a cartoon character named Sinbad Jr., who was a skinny teenager who would mm. tighten a belt and turn into mm. a muscle god. Yeah. And, yeah smite his foes.
0: You're nodding as if you've heard of this. Of course, I'm older than you. Of course, I've heard of some of you. How okay. old are you? I'm, uh, I'm, I was born in 1954. I'm actually, I'm actually 67. Oh, I'm Well,
1: well you, yeah, so so you might know some of these things. Anyway, yeah. so I. <laughs> I knew I was reacting to this character in a very obsessive and strange way. And I didn't know that there was a word for that. And it would be many, many years before I understood it. But I knew it was strange and not like the other kids. So I was an outsider growing up.
0: And um, did did you feel that like you felt that way in school as an outsider?
1: Yeah. I mean, I had friends. I wasn't antisocial, but I was also bad at sports. So yeah, oh, okay. I was okay. I
0: was always understood myself to be not a member of the club. Which is always a good thing because you don't want to be a member of that club. <laughs> if it has you as a member. Um, I think it's it's it not only builds character, but well, in any case, I know that feeling, but um, uh, you you must have been a good student i mean you went to yale now you were obviously now i didn't realize you were a legacy student in some sense but but and, and but uh, well, maybe the law school isn't considered legacy did your dad go to Yale as an undergraduate before no no, no he uh, went
1: to uh got got out of high school early, joined the army for a couple of years and uh, then went to uh, on the gi bill went to city college in new york oh, okay so it was from okay
0: and uh, so um you, your parents, do they? Well, they encourage you uh, academically.
1: It was assumed; it was an upper middle class Jewish family with yeah. a lawyer for a dad, so you know, there was there was no need to nag kids about doing homework. It was just what we did. Plus, yeah. in my case, I knew instinctively, you know, from maybe preteen, mm-hmm. that I needed to get out of Phoenix. and go somewhere else. And so I I worked and studied very hard at everything and tried to be the best at everything to get my ticket punched. Sure. And you went and you chose, why did you choose Yale? It was, uh, it was just obviously a good fit for me. Um, I got in some other places, but Yale was a place that was serious about academics and it was big enough not to be tiny i didn't want to be in one of those smaller postage stamp size liberal arts schools Uh Um, it was urban which i liked it had a reputation for good food and i was accepted into a life-changing program there called directed studies Ah. which should exist at every american university but it's a miniature yale within a yale that's freshman year program Three credits, writing intensive teaches the great books, and I knew I
0: had to do that. Oh, sure. That's li a little bit like University of Chicago then. That their 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 great books thing. But I don't think it existed when I taught there. At least I didn't ever heard of it. One of the things that When made did them, you teach there? I taught there eighty five to ninety three. And uh It did exist there. Oh see I didn't know about it up on the hill. I but I, science
1: I, people didn't know about because it, it well, was Well that's yeah
0: that's but 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 it goes both ways, because uh, Yale in uh, more than any other place I've been, um, I wouldn't say discriminated against the sciences, but separated the sciences out of, you know, there it was like I'd like to say, and this now in the modern world it'll be offensive to say this, but it wouldn't have been like a Chinese mania where you pick something from column A and some, and so Yale students might be required to walk up the hill and take a science course. But many of them got out of it without ever having to go near. Or took science. physics for poets. Yeah, exactly. Which is I taught at Yale for many years. Um, but did but what strikes me about this interesting is, I you. You, understand science, what science is, more clearly, than almost any scientist I've ever met. Uh, and, therefore, I'm intrigued. What did you study there, After, other than the directed um, program? I mean, the great books.
1: Well, it's interesting you, you say that I understand science better than many scientists. And, and I'd say it's a high compliment, but it's actually not because most of the scientists I know don't understand science. They understand what they do in their particular field, but, um, but they don't understand the larger process. So, sure. And
0: they don't, they don't have to, by the way, which is And they great. don't that have just, to. Right. Yeah, no, That's often, not their job. I often say, so, you know, people ask me about w- w- philosophy of science, for example, and I know you you like a few philosophers of science, like Kuhn and Popper and such, from reading you. But I like to point out, most, first of all, most scientists can't spell philosophy. But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, um, they don't need to know it. to. Uh, be, I mean, they know it by action. You know, They know it by the process of, of what gets them ahead in their career, it's sort of empirically, without thinking about the details, uh, which, which clearly y- you've done. And so that's okay. You know, it works because if they don't understand how science works, they don't end up not being successful because the whole process weeds 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 people out, as we'll get to in in in, in your yeah
1: yeah. We'll come to that. That's the subject of the constitution should, of knowledge, yeah, the inculcation yeah. of professional norms. Um, so in my case, I was very on early on i don't know why but i was interested in epistemology the problem of truth that may have had to do uh, with being an atheist and the challenge that you always get well how can you believe in anything then yeah um and then i in my yale career the, the my third and fourth years i discovered the writings of stephen j gould and mm-hmm. became interested in history and philosophy of science i wrote a thesis on the history of geology oh. british geology uh, of course, that,
0: that, that crumbs 18th, into your book yeah,
1: a lot. Yeah, I use a bit of my undergraduate thesis in my new book. Oh. So when this was a period when what we now know as geology, the whole idea of geology, that there could be such a science. I mean, I don't mean the specific discoveries. I mean, the very idea that you could look mm-hmm. back into time in a systematic, objective way and discover things was actually created over a period of about 40 or 50 years sure. by named individuals who worked in an intentional way. And when I saw that, I said, Eureka, this is, th- this is how science works. And it's a very human institution that is not people in labs with, um, with wearing white coats and just following, you know, where the evidence just tells them where they're going. That's not it at all. It's no. much more interesting than that.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. And as I say, I hadn't, their insights, and I've thought a lot about science, and as you know, I've talked a lot about science. In fact, we met the first time, I think, when I was speaking in in Washington about science and nonsense, I think. Um, uh, but but I, I have to admit that the social context of science is something I, I don't think I understood as clearly until after I read your book, really, truly. Um, but now this is, in a way, it's interesting, but it sort of disappoints me in a way, because I didn't realize you were so primed in your in your studies. First of all, I thought you're clearly enamored with philosophy. I mean, the the, the, the much from Plato on the the discussion of philosophers and utilizing um, them in your in your arguments. The reason the reason it surprised me is I assumed you studied economics because here hmm. I well the reason being you became a journalist and 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 largely uh, studying uh, covering economics right. And, 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 your, and a bunch of your examples in, in the book are your experiences about fundamentalist economists. So I had assumed you studied economics at Yale. And then I had no idea where this interest in science and philosophy of science and philosophers and epistemology came in. Because, of course, eco- economics and epistemology are almost the opposite.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, <laughs> economics was very incidental. I just covered it for two and a half years ah. in, uh, in Washington as, uh, as a reporter. So I love philosophy and I loved writing and did not, however, want to be an academic because I have a restless mind and could not see spending six years to get a doctorate on British philosophy between 1830 and 1850, and then doing the same thing for another 10 years. And then if I was lucky getting tenure, that wasn't the life I wanted. Um, Journalism gave me the opportunity to ramble and i i wanted to be a great writer too so in those days it's different now but in those days there were you know a handful of people like stephen jay gould uh-huh. who could be writers and essayists and scientists but very very few so yeah, there I'm, still
0: aren't that many but yeah I mean, yeah it's, it, it, it.
1: it's it's better now um and yeah. it's i think writing is now maybe a bit better valued in the sciences because so many people have been successful at it
0: Yeah, Uh yeah, I think you can can see see that when I, yeah, when I, but when I started, it wasn't that way. But yeah, when people see that, that you can be successful, it makes a big difference. In some sense, every scientist I now know wants to write a book. I keep telling them, for most people, in terms of dollars per hour, it's not very good, if, if that's why you're writing. To, uh, you're not going to make much money, but uh, right, right. But, but the uh, year yeah.
1: I graduated, a, a landmark book came out called Godel, Escher, Bach. Yes, oh yes, by a mathematician, and it was a runaway bestseller. It was a wow. brilliant book. It was magnificently written, and I think that kind of opened the door to a different way of thinking about
0: writing about science. It, it certainly did. It, I have to tell you a story, because my, uh, Martin Kessler was the p- publisher of Basic Books which which was my first publisher and it was when I, I met him when I was at Harvard and and he convinced me to to write my first book. it turned out not to be my first book but he signed me up in a contract my friend uh, Steven Weinberg who's a physicist had written a really wonderful science book called The First 3 Minutes and had um, knew I was interested in writing that uh, and and introduced me to Martin and um, Basic Books published uh, Gerald Geschbach it was their one runaway bestseller probably the only one they had at that time and um, and I asked Martin about that book, and he said that book will always sell. And I said why, and he said as long as there are bar mitzvah boys, that book will sell. <laughs> so I thought you could appreciate that. It was a great. It was Martin was very insightful. But you're right. It changed every. It it really it really um was a remarkable uh, book. In, in well in the sense of its success, unexpectedly. I mean, it wasn't so surprising later on when Stephen Hawking's book became a bestseller. It wasn't so surprising, even though it was clear that almost everyone who bought it didn't read it. But I still suspect the same, something was true. Good La was a long book, and I still suspect its popularity was built more on its breadth than actually people reading the details. But I, mean, I could be wrong. It's a
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, people buy books for a lot of reasons. I've been very surprised blown away in fact um this book constitution of knowledge that i've just published the one that you don't think every exact word is is most no no i mean
0: i thought you know it's 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 looser it's baggier there's
1: more stuff in it yeah it's very challenging it's got a lot of moving parts so i've been doing a lot of podcasts oh great and i've been trained as a journalist so just go to the top line no one wants the details well guess what everyone wants the details they want to do a deep dive, they want to understand, so what are these rules? What are these institutions? How are they being undermined? Give me the specifics. So I think maybe we underrate our audiences. I oh, we all you do. you give them a great meal like Gödel, Escher, Bach, they respond they, oh. less
0: superficially than we imagine. Oh, absolutely. The, the big, the big en- enemy... Of one of there are many big enemies of knowledge. A lot of whom you discuss in both books. And by the way, Constitution of Knowledge is also a fantastic book. In fact, I was just talking about it with my good friend who read your your um, the the kind of inquisitors uh, in audiobooks, and we were both raving about it as well. But but one of the, the besides all the people who are the enemies of knowledge. Two sets of people are editors and TV executives because. People are interested in the details, and and one and one of the reasons you don't see more science on TV is that people don't realize media producers don't realize that people actually are hungry for they really are interested in this stuff and this stuff is interesting and and what um, and what one of my first editors uh, who edited actually the physics of Star Trek said is that people want to go to the horse's mouth they want to they want to you know hear directly what's happening not not second hand so it's absolutely true and um and I, I, I to the extent this is people who read which i guess is now i mean people who read more than the, something the length of a tweet which is unfortunately i'm a little worried is a smaller part of the population than used to that reading reading lengthy um discussions is 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 a young among younger people especially is not uh, where they get their information so much I, it's an interesting sociological question whether to what extent you know i know that books books don't sell as much as they used to in terms of number of copies but um in general uh but i you know i don't know if that is a direct relation to 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 the reading but but uh but kind of inquisitors you're right is is short and i think probably i like that's another reason why I like it. I because I try in with my science books to make them as short as possible. My feeling is that biography books should be as long as possible and history books too. As well. But science books because of the intimidation factor should be if if, if you pick up a, a science book and it's 700 pages long, it's much, science is intimidating enough on its own that if someone picks up say physics star trek or universe of nothing or something like that and sees that in a you know less than 200 pages they it's one bit less intimidating than, um, than than it would be otherwise. So anyway, but, yeah, and I could go when on. When I
1: wrote Kindly Inquisitors, I was very much under the influence of A.J. Ayer, mm-hmm. whose philosophy I don't agree with, but who every word counted. And as a teenager, I had discovered Bertrand Russell, a great essayist. Sure. His essays are not necessarily great philosophy, but he had that same kind of philosophical writing style where everything is defined and meaningful. And I knew that's what I wanted, and it's pretty delightful that you identified that that book, although very short, is is, is meant to be impactful in that way. How did you discover Kindly Inquisitors, and, and when? Because as you may or may not know, to quote Hume, it fell stillborn from the press. It yeah, was completely yeah. ignored for the first 20-plus years of its existence.
0: Yeah, now it's really interesting how I learned about Kindly Inquisitors. I wish I could tell you. I've become pen, much... It might have been Penn. I'm not, you know, it might have been, you know, and that's Penn Gillette read it. On, and I, and because of you, I was reading it, but I, I bought, I got the audiobook version too, so I could listen to, to Penn read it Um, uh, uh, as an enjoyment factor. I'm not sure if it was that, or I also, I, this, the issues that have been, which were so presciently raised in Client Inquisitors, it's hard for me to believe that book came out what, 89? 93. 93, okay, the year I left Yale. Um, it, but it's still, it, I, I had, it, it, the issues which it's dealt with are, are so vital, especially today, but there was so much ahead of its time, and that's probably why it fell stillborn. I mean, it was, I think most people other than you weren't aware of the dangers that were brewing, and I wish more of us were because if they were maybe more of us maybe what's happening right now may not have happened or we would have been past that that curve because i think um it's what the all of the things that you were warning of have become true in multiples i use that word um and uh and um and i it's going i think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better and i i kind of wish people were more if people were more aware of the especially in the academic community of the dangers um, uh, maybe people would have stepped back before they bought into it so it's interesting what motivated you uh, uh, what motivated you to write Condé Inquisitors I miss I know that the Rushdie episode had a big impact on you but why what what motivated you to write that book Um,
1: well apart from the Rushdie episode which was what impelled me to quit my job and go to work on that book, which, by the way, I had no prospect of actually publishing when
0: I began it. Oh, you wrote it without an a- advance. You just wrote it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was totally uncommercial. I couldn't find a publisher. My, I finally found an agent. My agent couldn't sell it. Returned it to me. Said I couldn't. I got. He said he got one nibble. So he said, make me an offer in the low four figures. And and they wouldn't do it. Uh, Basic rejected it. Um, yeah. It wound yeah. up. I barely managed to get it into print. Um, And so here it is. It's true of a a lot of original works, right? A lot of good works. No one knows what they're looking at. So the other reason I wrote it, um, the broader reason was it seemed to me that defending free speech per se on the grounds of John Stuart Mill and the First Amendment, although extremely important, and I'm second to none in my passion for that quest, that's not sufficient. Um, it's it's not good enough to just say, well, the law requires free speech. Yeah. Because what we were seeing in the Khomeini episode, and also this was the initial rise of speech codes, political correctness, yeah. uh, radical egalitarian ideas on campus, um, postmodernism, deconstruction, all of that stuff was first bubbling up.
0: Well, and what you, I was, let, let me interrupt for one second. I'm, I'm an awful interrupter. People complain about me doing this, but were you at Yale during the, peak of deconstruction There's yeah a, oh okay good so i was going to
1: be an english major when i got there i took one look at the english uh, department and it was a nest of deconstruction yeah. people who hated books and reading yeah and i wanted nothing to do with that okay um so anyway. yeah that's that was in the background at this time so um so just falling back on free speech arguments wasn't enough if people didn't understand the reason we have free speech and also if they didn't understand what you have to do to turn free speech into knowledge—it's part of a—it's part of a whole knowledge-making system, which which I called liberal science. Yes. a phrase that didn't really work then and still doesn't really work, but but I argued that this is a vast social knowledge-making enterprise built on a lot of rules, and not just plain old free speech. And that what was what the attackers were going for, was not just about silencing people; it was undermining the whole system. That allows us to distinguish truth from falsehood. It's more fundamental. than that. Yeah. And I thought someone needs to make a, an argument that's grounded in those basic foundations and does not fall back on
0: legalism. Oh, interesting. Okay. And wow. But that, you know, I agree with you, but I still, it's amazing. I'm trying to remember those times, but it still seems amazingly prescient. I mean, there were some, I wasn't aware of, <clears throat> I was aware more of it from the right than the left at that point. Um um, that was um a- after the reagan per- period which which may have um which certainly radicalized a number of people um but uh to recognize that that threat and to and a- as more of a threat to to knowledge it's kind of interesting to me you were braver th- I, than me i i got involved you may or may not know, but i i part of my public whatever became. My public persona began when I was speaking out against um something you talk about in the book, the creationists: the efforts of uh, to impose not necessarily impose creationism but impose equality all all views mentioned in high schools it was a big deal when I moved to actually Ohio. Um, uh, the Ohio school board wanted to, wanted to do it. and the first time i I sort of became national got involved in national news was when I spoke at a big event with the Ohio School Board against that but my reason wasn't my reason wasn't that i ca- i mean i obviously cared about evolution but i viewed that attack as attack on science and so the question was why should i as a physicist get involved in 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 defending the teaching of evolution there were two reasons one the biologists didn't seem to be doing it and and two i had somewhat of a, a i had somewhat of a public name so i had the opportunity at least had a platform but but that whole notion of 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 all sides being presented and creationism being presented as if it were science was a fundamental attack on science and that's what upset me so i guess yeah me too
1: that there was a lot of that going on and that's one of the things that led me to see that the free speech defense was not adequate because creationists and others were turning the free speech argument to advantage by saying well this is freedom of speech right our views are our views, your views are your views, yeah. and freedom requires that both be presented to students and they should be allowed to make up their mind. That's freedom, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And
1: so you and I and other people had to start out almost from scratch, making the case to the public, no, wait, there's discipline, not just freedom. And,
0: and both are important. There are responsibilities here as well as rights. Well, and as you say somewhere, and, you know, I have a, I have a million notations and notes from your books, which I'm not going to get through probably, but... but, um. Science doesn't, you know, freedom of speech is one thing, but it doesn't mean freedom of knowledge, which we'll get to, which is a really important distinction, uh, I think. Let me, interesting when you say make the case, I'm just going to one one last bit of before we get to the maybe more hardcore arguments. Had you thought of going, you, some of the arguments are cre- clear and and almost seem legal to me. Did you think of going to law school? Is that Was that ever an option for you? I mean, your father was a Yale educated lawyer. Because are the arguments the logical arguments presenting the pros and cons almost socratically but it, my, my brother happens to be a professor of law and 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 um for better or worse and um and uh lived right near you taught at george mason for a while but um uh did you think of becoming a lawyer did, did that attract you i took the lsat
1: because oh. i thought maybe it would be a fallback but no i didn't want to be a lawyer and i got the best advice I've ever received, which I pass on to every 22 or three-year-old who's interested in law school, which is, Mm. don't go to law school unless you want to practice law for a living. And um, this lawyer who gave me that advice, I told him I took the LSAT, I did well, should I apply to law school? He said, do you want to practice law? And I said, no. And he said, well, um, then don't go to law school. Uh, don't go to dental school unless you want to be a dentist don't go to law school unless you want to be a lawyer so no i never considered it seriously it's
0: interesting because a lot of people say oh no law school is a great training of the mind it's okay to do have a law degree even if you're not going to be a lawyer but that's interesting that and and i think a lot of my old colleagues at Yale, my some of my best friends were there at the law school when i taught there they i think they would have argued oh it's a great training for the mind but but um interesting if, if you can be a professor at yale law school that's <laughs> that's
1: great but that's not the life most lawyers lead
0: yeah yeah no no exactly um i hear uh, it's
1: not so great at yale anymore but that's another conversation. yeah
0: yeah yeah well it's yeah i hear that now you um you actually so you quit your job to write kind of inquisitors i'm sorry i'm intrigued by these things because you didn't have an i mean it wasn't as if you had an advance you create your journalism job is that what you had before you wrote that book or not
1: yeah I talked my way into a six month fellowship at the American Enterprise Institute oh. where we met some oh, years okay. later. you had I wonder why um, you were there, okay. Mm-hmm. a wonderful philanthropist um, f- gave him enough money to to put me up for That's six wonderful. months to start the book and talk to actual scholars, yeah, who told me I didn't know squat and needed to go to grad school if I wanted to write this book. Um, mm. they were right. The book was completely drafted twice and then completely thrown away twice what you finally read is the third draft very different from the first and that's after it went through peer review which was very helpful in my case and helped it greatly so uh, it didn't start out that way but yeah I I was so passionate I realized that that just doing Washington journalism at that point seemed like too much a distraction and I I had the young man's conviction that the world was waiting to hear what I had
0: to say. Which did not prove to be the case.
1: <laughs> or let's well, just
0: say it waited a long time. Time. It waited a long time. Well, that's good. Better late than never. It's why, you know, and, and, uh, and in fact, having, having your words appreciated in your lifetime is something many great uh, writers never had that opportunity to have. Yeah,
1: yeah. Melville yeah. died thinking um, Moby Dick was a complete flop. Uh, yeah. Did you yeah. know? It's a footnote, but I can't resist. Did you know that, that Georges Bizet died thinking that Carmen was a complete flop? No, I didn't know that. Wow, he premiered it. It was hated. He rewrote it. Uh, then he died. The second performance, it was a smash hit, and has been ever since.
0: Well, I think if you're a a, a musician, dying is a really good way to get your work <laughs> appreciated. As far as I can tell, um, it's true for an artist too. Um, work pre always immediately. I I like buying. I like art, and I bought art. But it, it, when an artist dies, their work suddenly. Up. Anyway, it's it's not so it's not so true for scientists. I'm not sure, um, generally not. In fact, the although the the something that you actually mentioned in here about about the Supreme Court about someone saying, well, the Supreme Court is not going to be that way forever because I'm going to die rem- reminds me of a of a um, one of my favorite quotes about the way science progresses, which is which is kind of related to the social fabric of science that you talk about, and I promise we'll get there, but um, you know the statement from Max Planck who said, you know, science progresses one funeral at a time, mm-hmm. which is a really important because what happens is yes, there are people who don't buy, as you point out, Einstein didn't buy into, into quantum mechanics, there are people who didn't, you know, and um, you need to point out other geologists who never bought into the, what was ultimately geology but and that's fine, and science tolerates that, it, it marginalizes them um in the sense that you know the, it moves on it moves on and one of the ways it moves on is they go away um and well i i um i i want to okay well let, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about the definition of liberal science because i think it it um it, it it's probably a good way to go I, what with you i wanted to go through some of the arguments of your book what i found interesting about the book is you present it in the introduction kind of a general survey that hits all the points and then go in, in more detail later but you said by the way it was peer-reviewed so so eventually you, you did get it published but it was it was um uh was the publishers only sort of accepted it if it went out for peer review and then brought back in is that the way it was
1: yeah so what happened is my agent couldn't even give it away commercial publishers said this is really interesting but we don't know how to publish it so uh at that point i was ready to cut my losses because i'd spent four years on it not all of four years but a lot of four years on it unsuccessfully i brought it to my friend david bowes who was vice president at the cato institute and said could you bring this out as a think tank book you know just a little Mm -hmm. print um he liked it, and then he said, well, we have a partnership with University of Chicago Press.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and through that partnership, Chicago picked it up and became the publisher, and they put it through peer review. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that, was that a turned good out, it was, a, it was a terrific thing. I think one of the reviewers was perfunctory and said, yeah, sure, publish it. But another mm-hmm. whose identity is no longer a secret, Donald Downs of University of Wisconsin, uh-huh. one of the great thinkers of our time in the areas of free speech that I was writing on, I got—I can't remember—four or six pages of single-space notes, with with just great ideas and suggestions. Wow! wow. Uh, really made
0: the book, and we're friends to this day. It's wonderful when that happens, and it, when it, it works, it, it's great. When, yeah, when it, you know, I someone asked me about peer review. What, what it is. I explained the process of science. Actually, when I was combating a creationist, I said, you know, you submit things for peer review, and what's that? Well, that's you send it out to idiots who who then come up with stupid reasons why it shouldn't appear and then you try and convince them and eventually you get, if you're lucky, you get through and then you're published. But even that doesn't make it science because it's, you know, lots of nonsense gets through the publication process. But if other people like it and find it interesting and begin to test it, then it becomes science. And, you know, as opposed to the argument about creation science, which is you sort of try and avoid all those steps and simply and simply go directly into the schools. But, but it's wonderful and it's happened in my scientific career too. It's really rare... When a when a, um, a a peer reviewer takes a job and really improves the paper, and and it's kind of a shame in some ways that peer review is is um, is blind in, in that sense. I I, I um because cause you want to get something that you say. I give credit to an anonymous reviewer who said this, but you know, um, one of my colleagues when I was at Harvard who was an editor of a journal once said that he would he would publish everything he got along with the referees' reports. But the referees' reports had to have their names on it. If, I mean, they didn't do that, but that would have been his preference. Because then if your name's on it, you take it more seriously, first of all. And then and then you can, you can read the referees' reports before you read the paper to decide if the paper's worth it or whatever your opinions are. But it would be an interesting way of doing it, and it's part of the... I what do you think of that? Because it kind of re, it kind of goes into your argument that criticism, of course not your argument, but the truth that criticism is really the central part of what makes liberal science a social a social construct. Or not construct, a social process. Yeah, so
1: as we get into it, we can talk about this. There's a, a constitution of knowledge, the book enfolds and builds on the framework of of kindly inquisitors. Yeah, sure, yeah, it does but I think is in some ways a a more accurate description of what goes on. And and the reason for that is Kindly Inquisitors is basically a Popperian view of science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is that you've got a global network of people looking for each other's mistakes, Mm -hmm. trying to disconfirm each other. And that's very true. And so, yeah, that's, that's the model. You've got a kind of marketplace of criticism in which you don't necessarily know the person or anything about the person, uh, but you're criticizing the idea yeah. instead of the individual. And that is indeed a transformative social technology because until it came along, as Popper said, we, we killed the hypothesis by killing the person
0: yeah,
1: or jailing the person but, yeah. or yeah. kicking them out of polite society. So only by changing Systems so that we kill our hypotheses rather than each other. Do we make it possible for you, as a working scientist, to make errors again and again and not lose your career until you get something right? Okay. Wow. Even my dog, should dog. Be a... yeah, uh, my dog. Yeah, sorry. my dog should I like, be allowed to. I, I like the rule of uh, a video cast, which is that all animals should be seen. So yeah. the dog needs to make an appearance. Okay. Let's see if he if he's gone. I need out. to show the dog.
0: Oh no! Hold on. Bring him in. oh he was just—he was just escorted out by my wife, who thought he was. Hold on a second. Levi. Levi. No. Oh. He was. I'm sorry. He was kidnapped. He was kidnapped. Dog napped Yeah, dog napped he, well, hes defending the house because someone came to the door. All right. But I would—I would, well, I mean, I would we'll love to him have later. him. Normally he sits for me. Yeah, he—he he likes to come up and keep me company here, which is one of my pleasures. But you're right. I think. Uh, Levi is famous. I tend to post lots of pictures of him. Because, but in any case, he um, he definitely knows what to agree with and not. And he agreed with what you're saying. <laughs> and and um, so where were we? We were... Um, so peer uh, review, blind, yeah, not yeah. blind. Yeah, but we... Uh, you, and then the fact that the new book indeed is more... Well, it's a... It, you, the, the the Kind Inquisitors, as you are saying, is a preparing view, view and the new book sort of fleshes that out a little bit.
1: Yeah, The the... So Kindly Inquisitors, I'll just, I'll say what I think is important about that book, what okay. I think it established. And and then if you want, I can say a little bit about how kind how Constitution of Knowledge builds on that and in some ways kind of changes it. Okay. Is that a good agenda?
0: Sure. Well, we'll see. I mean, my experience is that whatever agenda we have will end up going somewhere else, but it's okay. <laughs> okay. So,
1: so uh, Constitution, I'm sorry, Kindly Inquisitors' insight is that we have a social system for deciding matters of truth. And it's Mm. similar to uh, economic capitalism and liberal democracy because it substitutes rules for rulers. And I make the move, which was unusual at the time and still makes a lot of people uncomfortable if they believe in a foundationalist idea of truth. I said, you know what, Uh, the postmodernists are right. All systems for making knowledge are political. Yeah, You can't claim that one of these things is neutral, has no point of view, has no political ramifications. They're right. And that's only the beginning of the argument, because once yeah. you say all the systems are political, you need to say, OK, so what's the best political system? For example, is German fascism in the 1930s just as good as American constitutional democracy? Mm-hmm. It's no good to say they're both political. And I, I said, this is where we've got to start making the argument that one of these political systems liberal science as I called it, is Mm -hmm. different qualitatively from all the others. It's the only one that does not rely on central authority, is the only Mm -hmm. one that enshrines freedom of thought. It is the only one that relies on non-coercive means to settle disputes so you get peace as a result. All the other political systems including the Marxist one Mm -hmm. and the fundamentalist ones and the deconstructionist ones, postmodernist, all of Mm -hmm. those things at some level wind up relying on authorities telling other people what to think or believe. And that's a disaster. And so that was was the central tenet of what I call liberal science, by which I mean not just bench science. I was looking for a term that was broad enough to include all of the knowledge-making industries, including literary criticism, journalism, all the professionals
0: who follow these
1: rules of checking, of empiricism, of depersonalization.
0: Yeah, you make so the point later, later on in the book, which I think is important. I, maybe in the afterwards, I can't remember, um, that, yeah, well, you're ta- liberal science isn't just talking about, well, checking, which is a key part of science, doesn't just involve the standard argument we tell people about science. You know, you go do experiments, you test, you retest, you do the hypothesis, you test, you do And it's not just, but that, that there's a moral knowledge that comes by the same process, that is checking, but checking by argument, by open criticism And 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 for by which we can also therefore. So it's it's not always just empirical testing. It's in fact, it's usually not. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it's that's that's part of it. But in philosophy, it's rarely empirical Uh, in moral argument, uh, which I believe is subject to knowledge and progress over time. In most fields, it's a variety of things. It's aesthetic, as, as you know, of course, better than most people physicists use aesthetics as an important guide to truth yeah i think is that's over i think
0: that's overrated by the way i think that's Do what you? they say more i mean people like to say yeah i, I mean rem- i remember in a both of your books you talk about the fact that physicists like to say beauty is is a is a guiding principle and i think they say that after the fact i i really think that's um because really it, it, because for physicists, just like for people, beauty is in the eye of the ho- beholder. And I can tell you from almost every physicist I know that they think their theory is beautiful, whether no matter how ugly it is. <laughs> well, I need to push back on that. I mean, you're
1: the physicist, so what okay. do I know? But but my impression is that something that makes a lot of physicists kind of unhappy right now is the big hairy complexity and complicatedness of the physical, the physicist worldview of basic particles and forces. And they're all out there saying, "Well, it kind of works, but it's kind of just taped together, and it's too complicated." And we want something simpler and more elegant. And it seems to me that's an aesthetic discomfort at some. Well,
0: it, to some extent, it is. I, I think that, yeah. But I guess, and this is really important. And I think Feynman pushed back on this, and as you may know, Feynman influenced me a lot. But I felt the same way, that el- elegance is not a criteria for good science. <laughs> it's just not. It, whether it works is what the criteria is and for a long time that question um did wasn't even important because the world the especially particle physics was so flooded by data and sometimes contradictory data that physicists were looking for ways to try and understand it and theories which helped make predictions rose to the fore what happened after the 19 early 1970s when the standard model was finally established again not i mean by a series of rather um, offhanded developments for example let, some people would say that that the that Steve Weinberg and 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 uh, Abdus Salam and Glashow won the Nobel prize for for unifying the weak and in electromagnetic interactions the first great unification of physics since Maxwell who'd unified electricity and magnetism and those are t- towering things um and and in a way in retrospect, are quite, quite beautiful, but they have a certain ugliness. And Weinberg's paper, um, sixty-seven paper, had zero citations until seventy-one or seventy-two, um, when experiments started suggesting it might might be relevant. So, and and but it now is viewed as beautiful. But obviously, somehow people didn't think so at the time. And what happened, I think, is that what people object to more is the arbitrariness, um, if, if, for example, I mean, th- there's a lot of parts to the, th- there's a lot of going on in particle physics, which has a beautiful, uh, frustratingly successful theory, the standard model, which explains every experiment we've seen to first approximation. And that's really frustrating for scientists. But what makes it ugly is it has these sort of 26 parameters that seem arbitrary, but i but if you had a fundamental theory that explained why those 26 parameters were what they were then that would be accepted as as, as beautiful now so i mean i you know i guess i think that that simplicity and elegance are part of the are part are certainly part of what people are looking for but they're driven more by um I hate to say it because it sounds trite. By what works, so if a technique or an idea works, I, it tends to be pushed to the end, and you only after the these things only become beautiful after the fact. I don't want it to be a, a lecture in history of science or anything, but like even even electricity and magnetism, Maxwell's equations are probably one of the most beautiful mathematical simple representations of almost everything that happens in the physical world because everything governs you and I. Is more or less electromagnetism. Electromagnetism governs atomic physics. It basically covers everything on Earth. Gravity, yeah, sure, you fall from buildings, but 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 really, the d- dynamics of cells and everything else that happens in the real world is electromagnetism, and it's incredibly beautiful. But of course, when Maxwell developed it, it wasn't beautiful. There were there were there were there were abstract explanations, wheel cogs and wheels, and and it was presented in a way that is nowhere near as mathematically elegant as is now. But it was recognized nevertheless to be profoundly true prob for many reasons in ret- again I, uh, historians of science will will correct me perhaps but for one of the main ones being that it uh, one of the most beautiful predictions is that light exists is that light is an electromagnetic wave. And that was true. Maxwell derived that but the beautiful picture didn't appear later. So I guess you know it, it is physicists are governed by fads and that's because it's you know part of the social, context of what you're talking about it's not done it's not done in a vacuum it's done science is done in this social milieu and that's and so yes what happened was that string theory became um a a dominant area of research and it was so divorced from experiment that the criteria basically of whether theories of, of the people working on string theory um the work was good or not was whether it was beautiful mathematically and that was that was true and that became true in the 1980s and 90s but a number of people viewed that as a real corruption that that people mm.
1: uh, well, That's yeah. that's interesting um one shouldn't think by aesthetics that i mean necessarily beauty in the conventional sense of lovely and elegant but just for example we don't need to spend too much time on this but yeah, it's I super interesting to me okay because uh, i don't get to talk to real physicists who are <laughs> really think about the stuff all that much, the very desire for a theory and for unifying ideas is, in some sense, aesthetic. So if I told you, I'll tell you what, Lawrence Krauss, why don't we just, suppose I have a computer and it's just a machine and we're just going to feed all the data into it and it's going to explain particle physics and everything else, Just it's going to just crank it out based on the data. There won't be any theory at all. It'll just be a pile of stuff, but it'll be predictive you would probably not really say that that was satisfying. You would hunger for something that seems explanatory and right, that makes sense to you, that, that fits in with your world. All of this
0: is a kind of aesthetic of science, right? Yes. Now I, I would argue that in the next century, that's probably not going to be the aesthetic of science. I, I suspect to the extent that that AI or quantum computers may reveal things, they may be back boxes that say, Yes, this is, the, this is the right thing to do if you're a doctor or whatever, but not, but have no fundamental biomedical explanation, but people buy it because it works. But you're right. It wouldn't be satisfying to me. But I'm an old, but I'm an old guy if we've already established that. So for me, for example, well, this, this is the only four, last foray into physics. I hadn't planned to do this, but you know, what the heck. Um, it's relevant because a lot of people think, you know, physicists have invented multiverses just so we can do away with God, which is not true at all. We did away with God a long time ago. But, um, uh, but it is an anathema to to my upbringing as a scientist because I, my upbringing as a scientist was, I want to explain why the world is the way it is because it has to be that way. I want to find the fundamental theory, as you point out, the fundamental explanation, and that's why I got involved in particle physics. But it could easily be, and in fact, the, the, the wise money on the street is that, in fact, it's, qu- it's equally likely now that the laws of physics that we have are just an accident, that there are many universes and they have different laws of physics. And um, there may be no fundamental reason why certain key parameters of nature that are really fundamental to our existence are what they are, except that we're here to measure them. And that's an awful, it's very unsettling to me and i think to many scientists we've been driven there rather than seeking it out um but that may be you know and that would be again i guess the antithesis of i suppose, suppose of beauty but it but my bet i bet most people would the be, the most likely argument is that our universe is unique and and equally likely is that at least some fundamental aspects of physics are perhaps Anthropic. I hate to use that word, but anyway. well, I
1: guess. But if if there's an infinity of universes and the only one is hospitable to life because all the constants are exactly right and that's ours and we're in it, then there's no consequences of this theory except that here we are. So yeah. Well, actually, why, but I, why but does I, it matter?
0: Well, actually, just to clarify, it may, it, it could, it's something I've been fighting against because the people who are t- there's been a recent resurgence of these creationists. That you fought and I fought, uh, or at least intellectually fought, um, who are saying the world is fine tuned uh, for us. And the, the argument isn't that there's only one universe that's hospitable to life, it's that our universe is hospitable to life like ours. And, um, you know, but, but no one knows because we don't know the, the locus of all possible life forms in another universe where the laws of physics were different that there couldn't be other life forms that were and those, peop- those life forms would ask why is, why is our universe so why, are we, why is our, our universe so finely tuned for us and what they miss is that they're finely tuned for their universe and we're finely tuned for ours but anyway um, but, but, but if you can the, it may not be predictive but if it is I mean the, you might be that's the whole point of the multiverse argument you may be able to make certain predictions about correlations between theories well, we're going way off yeah, anyway, well, why don't
1: I should I return to my narrative? Um, yeah, about, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I we'll guess to... so.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I took you on a on a side. Be- no, but I love you... it. I love okay. it.
1: Okay, so so thrilled and fascinated. Uh, well, and and, but, and these but are this meant to is be dialogues. relevant because okay. we're talking about we're talking about the p- black boxes and whether you can yeah. have black box physics. Yeah. So kindly inquisitors, I agree with you. It's a masterpiece of philosophy. it Will outlive Plato <laughs> and Aristotle. The last cockroaches will be crawling <laughs> over it as the light from the sun fades. But there's something very important missing from it, which is it's a black box theory. It just says, okay, so what you need is a system. You have lots of critics and they take shots at each other and what emerges is knowledge. And that I came to believe was woefully incomplete. And in fact, in some ways misleading because it leads to this notion that if all you have is free speech and people being critical of each other, what'll come out the other end will be objective knowledge and science. And sometime around 2015 and 16, and the massive new attacks that we were seeing that I describe in the constitution knowledge, I realized that a lot of what was being undermined here was not freedom of speech or freedom of thought. It was all of these mechanisms, all of these social structures, the whole architecture we rely Mm -hmm. on to turn free speech into objective knowledge. And that turns out to be extremely, extremely difficult. Yeah because it turns out that in a world with unstructured free speech you get twitter you get people Mm. who are simply displaying to each other in in order to enhance their status attract attention Mm. sell advertising the last thing they want to do is systematically expose their views to rational critics who will then publish and then have to respond to that this is not what human beings do if you leave them alone so it turns out You need an elaborate set of social institutions and principles that channel conversations into constructive knowledge-making directions i picked this up i think the revelation started to hit me in a speech from from jonathan Haidt, who you probably know oh i know sure uh, gave a, a speech in the manhattan institute a few years ago where he used an analogy from physics he says it turns out there are a whole lot of constants that you need to get right in order to have the universe we're in. Likewise, in liberal democracy, there are a whole lot of social settings you need to get right in order to have the kinds of free societies and productive societies we have. And I said that's exactly right. That's what the U.S. Constitution is. It's not just words on paper. It's a whole setting, a series of social settings for turning conflict into uh, into peace and into policy into law and doing that in a way that's productive and peaceful. And I said, so we have to go inside the black box of criticism. What are the structures that turn free speech into knowledge? That's the constitution of knowledge. So the big new insight of this book is how do we structure society so that we can have productive and civil Mm -hmm. discourse that turns criticism into knowledge? And that turns out to be, there's a lot of stuff involved. Yeah, sure. A- and it, it took you all those years of school, graduate training, um, all the stuff you've had to do to become a scientist. You mentioned earlier that even scientists don't understand these rules and norms. They don't have to because it's, it's been wired into them. Yeah, it's right? been wired into yeah. But that's very much like until recently, we had wired into us the idea that if you lose an election, you concede.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. turns out democracy
1: kind of depends on that. Yeah, if you yeah. break that rule, there are some pretty, pretty bad consequences.
0: Well, yeah. and same
1: in the Constitution of Knowledge. If you just decide, wait a minute, we're just going to, as Stephen Bannon said, flood the zone with shit, mm-hmm. just pour out so much falsehood at such a rate that no one can keep up with it. There's no legal recourse against that, but it can destroy our ability as a
0: society to stay in touch with knowledge. So that's what the second book is about. And has yeah. yeah, And I one one I couldn't help but think. Well, I guess it's not. It, it's kind of explicit too that were you, were, were you motivated to write that because of the. Well, there are many reasons, but were, mo, most directly because of the Trump phenomena. Of the, yeah. Of, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one gets no, I was very worried about
1: cancel culture, too. And my yeah. other big insight in this new book is that cancel culture on the left and disinformation on the right, although they have different political goals and different people are using them, they're both fundamentally forms of information warfare aimed at undermining the constitution of knowledge. And they're both very sophisticated, very effective, and need a more coherent and robust response than they have received so far.
0: Yeah, well, okay. I guess I disagree. I think the cancel culture is much less sophisticated than than, than, than what Steve Bannon was talking about in the sense it's much no, more... No, I'd be
1: interested so. in telling you well, why I think it's sophisticated. Oh, okay, well,
0: okay. Well, we'll, well, yeah, let's... We'll get there then. Okay, um, let me... Uh, but I, I, I... Because the word truth is there, that's why... The, you didn't really mention the word truth or, or 50 years earlier or what 30 years earlier or whatever it was, um, 30 years. Uh, and truth, I guess, becomes more... Uh, more re- relevant in an era of 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 uh, of of uh, fake of, of falsification of truth. So that's what I mean. It, this, Trump's active denial of truth, which was the first time, and uh, that was really done with that kind of extreme prejudice, uh, must have. You know, I'm wondering why the word truth. I guess I'm is a long way of saying uh, coming about. Uh, because because well, you know in... i mean because uh, cuz let's just say there's a distinction between truth and knowledge and uh, and my own view of them have changed a lot now too because of reading you there is no such thing as scientific truth let me just uh, 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 there's no absolute truths in science in the sense that truth is absolute science just sort of finds out what isn't true and what's left over like the like the the Sherlock Holmes story is, is you know, probably got some possibility of it, but so truth never. When people talk to you about truth, I always I always begin to get weary because it sounds religious to me in some sense. Um, so anyway, let will give you a chance to talk.
1: But you would say you're a physicist, so you'd, you'd say that you at least strive to get closer to truth. Oh yeah,
0: closer. Just to that truth. you don't have it. Yeah, yeah. So that's right.
1: Truth and objective knowledge—that's the kind of knowledge we're talking about today. Yeah. There's you know recipe knowledge yeah. and other yeah. kinds of yeah. things, yeah. but we're talking about. The stuff in the books that we rely on to to tell us how the world works outside, they are different things, and you need them both, but truth is a value. It's, as Popper said, it's a regulative idea, or it's a directional idea. It's like north or up. You Mm -hmm. don't reach it, but you can go that direction, and you can, you hope, over time approach it. Objective knowledge, on the other hand, is a real thing. It exists. You can go to a library, take it off the shelf, drop it on your foot, it might break your toe. So it is is a tangible thing. It is constantly changing and being updated. We hope it's getting closer to truth. In physics, we certainly have every reason to think that's true. Uh, But you need both of these concepts, right? Truth is a value. And if you give up that value, if you go the full deconstructionist or modern postmodernist skeptical viewpoint that there's no such thing as truth, then you simply become incoherent uh, because you've got no directional principle for all the things we do. So you've got to have the value, and then you've got to have the systems that translate that value to actual processes. And that's the constitution of knowledge, which builds objective knowledge. So those are kind of, that's how I triangulate.
0: Okay. Uh, it's funny. I, yeah. Okay. Now some of the system, uh, what I also, what you stress more, although I noticed it when I read back, I read the, 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 the kind of quizzes again after looking at the constitution of, of knowledge. And so I, you know, to see, to try and compare. And I did notice some things the second time that I had noticed the first, but you emphasize a lot more in the constitution of knowledge, the, the similar, the relationship between the social infrastructure and, 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 um, of, of science and, and natural selection and economics in in the sense of the institutions that of capitalism and um and in the case of biology natural selection which kind of enforces that kind of marketplace in one case the marketplace of of species in another case the market the literal marketplace and the last case the marketplace of knowledge with and, and and but are you suggest are you suggesting that the latter the liberal science requires a more Concerted effort to in, to ensure those institutions remain valid, or that they, or that they have a way of, of propagating on their own, like in the case of capitalism. Oh, very, very
1: much the former. So I don't
0: uh, in, in either book, but I don't, I don't really
1: use very much the analogies to to evolution. Um, I make a reference to evolutionary epistemology in yeah. a historical sense, but what I don't like about it is that evolution is, of course, a a blind process with no intentionality and no goal. And that is not at all true of, say, the Constitution of Knowledge, or for that matter, the US Constitution. Um, now, they neither of them has a final resting spot, a, finish, a final election, uh, a regime that lasts, you know, the thousand year Reich, um, or eternal truth that can never be questioned. But they all are constructed environments made by people to solve social problems and get us closer to right answers and adapt ourselves better. And they are both, especially uh, Constitution of Knowledge is a cumulative system. It's building on knowledge from the past. So it's more directional and above all, it's more intentional. And the whole point of the book, The Constitution of Knowledge, really both of these books is we must not, we must not assume that these systems take care of themselves that they just tick along on kind of organic principles. Like the US Constitution, the Constitution of Knowledge, which is constitutional, it's not written down, but it does very much the same kinds of things. This is an intentional system that relies on the maintenance and sustenance of institutions and norms and rules, which are difficult to inculcate, require a lot of discipline and training to follow, and must be defended. They do not take care of themselves. And it's like if you neglect the U.S. Constitution and allow those institutions to decay and elect as president people Mm -hmm. who lie, um, who obstruct justice, who discount an election, who try to steal an election, you will not have a constitutional regime. And similarly, in the Constitution of Knowledge, if you have people who don't care about truth or people in academia who become corrupt and begin indoctrinating instead of inquiring, if you start blocking the pathways of inquiry, if you start flooding the zone with shit, you will not have a constitutional knowledge. You will have chaos
0: and conflict. And that's where we're headed. I will actually, say that's actually that's where we are. I you know it with 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 the with trump and 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 all of that it's it's much more manifest in public but i'm i'm throughout your books i keep thinking well you know he thinks this is bad but now it's just so much worse i i think we are already at the point in academia of already having produced i'm not sure chaos but having um having uh uh, uh created a a system where where universities don't do what universities are supposed to do um, and you Be know' more
1: specific Well you said what you know what uh, symptoms of that
0: are we talking about you know sort of rampant wokeness Well wokeness is a wokeness is an example but the fact that that um, that uh, you can't well there's two things that it's generally accepted now in fact actually early on in the first book you talk about um, any system for deciding, what's objectively who is objectively right is a social system so you point out that yes that's who you refer that, that liberal science is a social system and uh, has political consequences and it's and but you point out hey that saying that science is political is not the same as saying science is political it, it's saying liberal science does not throw its opponents in jail but it does deny their beliefs respectability but and and you point you the example you give which is at the time was an anomaly was feminists saying a feminist who said the scientific method rests on a particular definition of objectivity that we feminists must call into question. That was an outlier, but that's now the norm. That, that sense that, um, that, uh, um, that the process of science is independent of who's doing it and should be, and it should rest on a on a on a broad broad base of, of criticism and counter criticism, independent of identity. That's over. That's over. Is that over. true in physics? It, it, yeah, yeah. I um, in the sense that that um, it, that it is now a requirement for entry into the community that you recognize um, that identity. Um, yeah, uh, um, is is uh, uh, that well that you recognize that science is systemically racist, which it isn't, by the way. Like, would
1: you have to write in a paper that that magnetic fields are in some way Western
0: or imperialistic because uh, uh, Maxwell? Yeah, well, them? you wouldn't have to, but that's but that's what's coming up. I mean, I just there's a someone who a, a young a, a young physicist who is. is physics i don't know very well her physics i don't know very well but you know made a, who was nevertheless labeled by, by nature i think as one of the rising stars gave a talk on how black knowledge is really an essential problem that 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 physics doesn't you know that needs to be done using black knowledge and and that's that's the fact that it isn't laughed out of the out of the room is is amazing and the fact that you yes that now uh, for example in let me give you some a few examples um journals scientific journals are regularly now censoring scientific discussions that may um that may offend in fact the royal society of chemistry just put out uh guidance to their to their editors that that any any anything that might offend regardless of its intent should be considered not to be published and they and the and the, and the Journal of Hospital Medicine just re- retracted a paper um, saying that because the, the title was "Science uh, Tribalism in Medicine," you know, it was arguing against tribalism in medicine, but they argued that um, the word tribalism was offensive and the paper should not be even though it was defined in that paper it should it, it shouldn't that so they removed it and then they rewrote it removing that those terms and then apologizing um, for it i mean there just there are tons of examples and and the main example which we were talking about beforehand that now it's not that you can't well you can't but there's a gatekeeper requirement that if you don't accept the notion uh, as defined by someone else, by some I- institutional bureaucracy within academia called diversity, equity, and inclusion now in most academic institutions. If, if you don't accept that, you can't get the job in the first place. And it's not just, it's not just doing a loyalty oath. It's saying you will not just, you're not agree with it, but you will demonstrate, you must be able to show that you will demonstrate your agreement with that in all of your actions as a faculty member. Otherwise, you won't even consider you as a faculty member and so I, I you know you talk about uh, at one point you said a uh, a no offense society is not a a knowledge society, and there was another great line about um a university that that um that doesn't allow either offense or or disagreement as a monastery not a not a university and unfortunately, universities are are throughout the throughout at least the United States and North America and to some extent around the world, but more so North America, are becoming monasteries.
1: So I see these trends. Thank you for the new examples, though, which I had not seen, which are, of course, disturbing. I guess the question in my mind is, is it five minutes to midnight or is it more like 20 minutes to midnight? Because a lot depends on whether it's too late to begin turning some of these things around. I think we're starting to see so call me Pollyanna, uh, but 20 years ago we got the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, yeah, yeah. which started working on free speech. and hasn't won those battles, but it's there, and it's it's even the odds in many of these cases. Enforced universities. I noticed to, in
0: 2009. I noticed in constitutional or at least or maybe the end of your your pref your afterward in in kindly quizzers. You say it's getting better, and that shocked me. You said because of groups like that.
1: Um, well, there's something I didn't know then, which. Mm forced me to reassess that, at that point, optimism. Uh, and that's that the battle was, it, although it was never won against speech codes, the courts weighed in and there's now legal advice and colleges know that they get in trouble, if, especially if they're public universities and they they traduce free speech. So at the legal level, there was progress. What I did not know was about to happen when I wrote those words, two years later, John Heights says it's 2000. 13, Mm. 14, 15, is the the problem begins to mutate and morph and become less about top-down speech codes enforced by administrators and more about bottom-up social coercion coming from students and politicized faculty at the lower level using social coercion, not formal coercion, to limit discussion and dialogue. So it's certainly very bad if the American Chemical Society or whoever it mm-hmm. might be issues a top down edict saying, here's how you will edit your papers, here's the new rule. But at least that's a target. We can look at it and criticize it. Right now, what we see is 60 plus percent of students say that they are reluctant to state their true political views for fear of bad social consequences, well justified fear mm-hmm. of bad social consequences. Absolutely. And this is. This is true among progressives, not just conservatives, because progressives, oh. progressives are the most vulnerable to canceling, because that's their community coming after them. Yeah, or they, so, they go after their own. So this is a harder problem, right? Because this is in the social environment, and you can't you can't sue it. Yeah. Um, you can try to pass policies against it, but you need to start pulling the culture back. That's part of why I wrote the Constitution of Knowledge. The first thing that has to happen is understand that this danger we face is to the whole system that we rely on to keep society and ourselves moored to reality. Um, and that, that the when that goes away, we're talking about chaos and conflict and ungovernability and extreme polarization and the collapse of knowledge-making institutions. So we got to understand that first. And then people like you And me and other small l liberals, Mm -hmm. pluralists, need to start pushing back in many levels. I think that's starting to happen. The Academic Freedom Alliance, Princetonians for Free Speech, Foundation Against Intolerance. I can go on and on. Well, they're all seeing. We're seeing more counter organizations, and we're certainly seeing heightened consciousness of the problem, including among progressive faculty members. But we're nowhere near. Yet the level of counter mobilization that will be necessary to take this on. Well, yeah, no, maybe I, I, you're saying it's too late. So no, maybe- no, I'm not
0: saying it's too late. I'm I'm just saying it's going to get worse before it gets better, and it's I think it's going to get a lot worse. the tra- The problem is uh, along the lines you talked about about we need to defend the institutions associated with the constitution of knowledge, just like we need to defend the constitution. One of those institutions is is the the, the, the academic infrastructure that supports academic freedom, not just freedom of speech, but, but, um, but academic freedom. So you're absolutely right. It's coming from the bottom up in the sense of social pressure. But what's happening, unfortunately, is that the is that the institutions themselves, in response, and response that I can understand, because it's a lot easier to accede to the mob than it is to counter the mob. If you're worrying about you, if you're worrying about getting new students, getting new, uh, how parents are going to respond, how donors are going to respond, um, it's a lot easier to virtue signal. So you're seeing the institutions not only cave in, but doing the but more than that, going the extra mile to point out that they're that they're that they're not system, systemically racist or they're not X, Y or Z. When, somewhere you talked about HL Mencken or someone I like a lot. Um, and pointed out that that um in his diaries he, he you know even though he's a staunch defender of, of, of blacks and jews he in his diaries he may have said something and then someone writing said if you defend Men- Mencken, then you yourself are either anti-semitic or or wh- whatever and you're seeing that now let me give you an example and, and you may know of this one because it's been publicized recently but it's the it's the it, I've talked about some of these in something I've written for the Wall Street Journal, which will probably be out before our piece comes out, so or before our dialogue comes out. But MIT, you know about MIT, you know this. Yeah, I've been following
1: it. Yeah, yeah it's,
0: it's, appalling. it's it's appalling. It's appalling, but it's it would be appalling if it was an anomaly. <laughs> and it what you're seeing is that um, he, that's just one example of um, there. are there are a variety of university professors who spoke out against you know as you talk about in your book and i and I, and i agree that affirmative action is something that reasonable people can differ about and have dialogues about but you're not allowed to have those dialogues and any faculty member who now expresses any concerns is marginalized or removed let me give you another example um uh, the um a faculty member at, at at in Berea College, which is a I guess a small religious college, or at least it's religious based. It's a private college in Kansas. A psychologist, and a relatively well known psychologist, decided to do a study of hostile work environments, and um, and did a, a, a not a survey, but a, basically a, 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 a one of these surveys where and he had to get permission from his office of human interactions or whatever, gave them the survey. Did it about asking people whether this was a hostile work environment, whether this was this was and some of the examples were based on examples that had happened in the in at, at their school, people who were convicted of having a hostile work environment. The reaction among students was so strong that any of these examples were used that they asked for him to be removed. And the administration said, well, looked at it and said, well, the only way we can remove a tenured faculty member is to say you're incompetent, so you're you're incompetent, and they removed him. For, creating a hostile work environment by asking about a hostile work environment
1: okay so i'm going to push back not because you're wrong but because i think the picture you're complaining painting is incomplete at least i hope it is me too. and this is going to go back this will take a second but but it will be relevant this is going to go back to the point we were touched on earlier which is i said that canceling is very sophisticated yes good Um, canceling what's happening here you're being manipulated mm-hmm. by a numerically comparatively small group of activists. Yes, who are not representative of the students or the faculty on campus who are using sophisticated social technologies of information warfare to make it appear as if they dominate the consensus. Yes, and it's always- Same thing anti-vaxxers did by populating the internet with anti-vax stuff. It's a tiny fringe belief, but if you go on Google, all the stuff you'll see, a lot of it will be anti-vax. You'll think it's respectable. So on campus, you've had capture by these relatively small groups of activists and their abettors in various administrative roles who shoot your head off if you stick it above the parapet. Now this has two effects. One is the crude effect, which I think is what you had in mind when you said these were crude tactics, which is people keep their head down. Mm -hmm. They stay quiet. Debate is chilled because no one wants to take that risk. That's only the crude effect. The more sophisticated effect is that they're falsifying the consensus. They're making it appear as if lots of people on campus agree with what they're doing, that they're the predominant view that has the effect of demoralizing you. This is it's called this is a well-known effect. Yeah, Hochul sure. Pointed it out. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's called spirals of silence in the in this, in the sociological literature. It's playing with your mind to make you think, well, I must be crazy to object to what these people are saying, or at least it's hopeless to go up against them. They control they dominate the environment. Now, in fact, it doesn't take very many people to break a spiral of silence. Right. You, 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 That's what happened to the Soviet Union after 70 years of everybody saying, I'm not going to speak up because no one else is speaking up. I don't know what anyone else believes. I'm probably wrong. And it's hopeless anyway. This can collapse very quickly. It it can. What it takes to collapse is some university leadership that will push back, as President Zimmer has done in Chicago. The only I was, one I know of. The only one I, I know was, of is Zimmer. Well, I think now 80 some schools have signed the Chicago Principles, mm-hmm. a clear statement of values. I just got back from speaking at a school last week, University of Denver, mm-hmm. which inaugurated a new president who brought me in to say, you guys should tighten up your speech rules. And we brought up at his urging, the MIT example. And mm-hmm. he made a public commitment that if there was a similar cases at MIT, he would not deplatform that person. The reason was he was appalled. Lots of people in academia are appalled by what MIT did. So here's the question. It's not that it's a hopeless case because there are only 10 of us and a million of them. It's how do we get the uh, the demoralized majority to start pushing back in organized, coherent ways and develop the leadership on campuses
0: that will allow that to happen? Ab, abs- look, I couldn't agree with you more in that sense. And I've been thinking, I've been working with colleagues to try and figure out how you can turn that around. And the Soviet example is the Prototypical example of ultimately, ultimately, these these towers of subterfuge will will collapse. But but in, you know there were as happened in the Soviet case. There are a lot of people who suffered for a long time before that happened. And sure. what's what it's I'm not. And what I think it is going to take are people willing, at some point, to sacrifice, in some sense, themselves. Uh, for what they view to be a higher a higher goal you're absolutely right that these are very small groups and that's what makes it so frustrating as academics we I myself my colleagues talk about that the problem is and and it is and I'm glad you say look I'm I've known many university presidents and almost none of them have ever impressed me and the more I get to know them Um, and Zimmer is, is an exception What is surprising to me is how quickly universities will respond to a group of one or two or three or four social media people who are clearly inordinately vocal, but also clearly not a large group. They will respond to cut that off immediately because the fear at universities, fundraising and otherwise, is that any publicity is bad publicity uh, in, in, in this regard. And and. So that the reason I don't think that the people you're talking about are as sophisticated as maybe, the reason I didn't think they were sophisticated is unlike, well, maybe unlike maybe Steve Bannon does say overtly what to, is these people say overtly they're not hiding what they're trying to do. They're out saying, this is what we want. And I don't think they're the ones who are making it appear as if they're a larger group than they are. The people who are making it appear, I don't think they've done anything very sophisticated other than being loud and being able to periodically get get um, get petitions, it's the university administrators who, and it, and it's not even the university administrators because the university administrators are now subjugated by this incredible bureaucracy. It's kind of like the Soviet Union, uh, in the sense that there's a secret police there. In universities, there are these incredible bureaucracies called diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracies that run independently of the faculty without supervision. Without control, and I happen—I I suspect the university administrators are are feel powerless to address that. Let let me—I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal called uh, "The Ideological Corruption of Science" a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. Worried about some of these things, I had faculty right me around the country, independently, I think four or five different faculty emailed me under pseudonyms because they were so concerned that if if the administrators found out what they were writing that their jobs would be on the line that that strikes me as something worth worrying about when it gets to be that Yeah point. well
1: you know one part of the last chapter in my book says the real snowflakes are not the students who are protesting on safe speech or whatever it's the tenured professors who dive under the furniture join the cancel campaigns, or even worse, call up someone like Rebecca Tuvel when she got Mm. canceled at Rhodes College and say, gee, I'm really sorry about what's happening to you. It's a terrible thing. Uh, I apologize, but I can't say anything in your defense because they'll come after me next. So as in the Soviet Union, the reason they work so hard to cut off the head of every dissident, to stamp it out, is because they know, I think they're more sophisticated than you do, but maybe it's instinct Mm -hmm. But they know that it doesn't really take that many voices to break a spiral of silence. They know it doesn't take 500 professors at a university. As Robbie George says at Princeton, sometimes it only takes five if they're the right professors to start blowing the whistle, making trouble for the administration, bringing the lawsuits if necessary, providing the support for each other, bringing in the outside resources. Universities and administrators are institutions, and they will respond to pressure and it's it's startling to me how helpless tenured professors seem to feel themselves to be they have they seem to feel like they've been doormats for so long now that there's no longer anything they can do i got a story two weeks ago correspondence from a professor i know a political scientist at a uh, at a public university who who told me in detail so he had one student just one mm-hmm. it's usually just one yeah um who filed a complaint against him because he was center-right and she felt that endangered her safety and all of that and she had a list of of complaints of things that he had done one example was that he had used the words black and african-american as nouns instead of adjectives and (laughs) and there were like 10 items and they were all like that in other words None of them alleged professional misconduct. Yeah. They were simply her complaints mm-hmm. about his class, right? Yeah. With with one minor exception, which is she alleged he called on her less than others, which would be misconduct if it were racist, but that's it, right? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he's called in. He's a, he's a he's a professor. Yeah. And he is called in for 2.5 hours of inquisition by a mid-level human resources human, officer yeah they're the worst and and he's supposed to answer all these complaints which he has not been able to see Only yes. the officer <laughs> has seen them but she recounts them yeah and then he writes a long response and i'm like gobsmacked because i'm saying okay i understand this is reality but in what universe is a professor accountable to a mid-level HR bureaucrat who has probably never set foot in the classroom as a teacher in what universe does she get to grill him about what is not even plausibly prima facie professional misconduct why isn't the American Association of University Professors all over this saying of course you
0: can't do this because it's the norm not the exception i'm t- that's the way well, we're is. talking in circles then right yeah. so yeah I mean, you're, you're. I think, well, having been a professor for many years, I think the first thing is professors are by nature kind of terrified. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 as a profession, they become academics because it's supposed to be safe. They're, so it's partly not subject to the vicissitudes of the real world. Um, but most, by nature, most try to keep their heads down because everything the administration wants to do is going to interfere with either your funding or your research. And so you try and basically keep going... And navigating those barriers or potential barriers with, with, with as as simply as possible. You don't want because because anything new. And I've been to in two institutions where I created new things, and the first response of most of my colleagues was no. Until until we try to convince them, the rising tide raises all ships, and we got to do that. But yeah. anything new is potentially going to because because almost it, often it's a zero sum game. A new program will take funds away. From existing programs, and so faculty I think by nature are very, very timid and I, I I think it's a it's a characteristic for most faculty. but the second result is observing that um, and and this has been true for a long time that that these tribunals and these kind of um, Kafkaesque proceedings are um Are possible and 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 so uh, the best best to avoid it. Look, you know you mentioned Jonathan Haidt, who I know well. But but what amazed me, and I'm not, I think it was in a either when we were talking or a talk he gave. I don't know if he put it in any of his books. But he said, I know I changed the way I I changed my course structure. I changed the lessons that I put. I removed certain lessons because I knew they would produce there would be students who would object and it would da- endanger my job and this is an outspoken person right but but he's personally made sure that that those those kind of episodes don't happen in his class because he realizes that uh, it's not guaranteed but it's perfectly possible yeah.
1: that- well so i don't think either of us knows whether it's five minutes to midnight or even past midnight or 20 minutes to midnight, I wrote my book under the assumption that if we can get people to understand the stakes, you don't need everyone. You just need a core of people who are willing to push back. I, I think we're seeing that in the Academic Freedom Alliance and Heterodox Academy. And anecdotally, of course, You know, data is not the plural of anecdotes. Yeah, 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 I know. But something that's changed in the past couple of years is progressives on and off campus have woken up to the fact that they are targets, too. Yeah. That what used to be perceived as an anti-conservative campaign is now understood correctly to be a campaign to dominate the entire campus and especially to police progressives. And that there's no amount of conformity that they can do, which will guarantee peace and quiet for them. So that's beginning to sink in, and I'm starting to hear from more people, again, it's anecdotal, yeah. but that they're fed up with it, they're fed up with with being frightened of their students, which is something a lot of professors now say, that they're oh, frightened. Yeah. And, and, um, and students, students are frightened by Students don't like it. One thing we know about disinformation and epistemically corrupted environments is people hate them. It's like breathing air that's full of grime and smog, mm-hmm. coughing all day, not being able to see no one wants that experience. So you say maybe it gets worse before it gets better. Maybe that's right. Or maybe we're already starting to see the, the next phase of consciousness, which will begin to help people pull together and push back. I, I'm heartened by the Chicago principles. It's yeah, just yeah. a start. But nothing terrible happens to schools that adopt them. Mm-hmm. Um You saw the case. Actually, it's the first Abbott case, Dorian Abbott, before MIT threw him under the bus. So disgracefully, there was an attempt to cancel him at Chicago. Sure, I know. The usual several hundred grad students, the usual gang Mm. said this guy should be investigated because he's whatever, a racist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you saw what President Zimmer did. He put out a one paragraph statement saying, we believe in free speech. The guy was exercising it. There's nothing to investigate. And as you know, the result of that was that the alumni went on strike, the university was defunded, the students all left the campus, Zimmer was fired, (laughs) and the campus burned to the ground.
0: Yeah, well, you're laughing
1: because what did happen, actually, nothing happened. The counselors went off to look for a softer target. Yeah. Once you begin standing up to them, their power is reduced. It's shown to be a figment of the fact that they've manipulated the environment so that we're all afraid of them. Look, so can we break that loop? I don't know. You tell me you're in
0: academia. I'm not, well, I'm not anymore. I'm retired, but, but I, 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 uh, look, you you made it perfect. the point perfectly as well as I better than I could have, no doubt. I think we've thought about that. I think what it requires when you think about either the McCarthy era or the, which to me is almost a better analogy. What it requires is either key people like, like Zimmer, but enough of them to stand up and say, that we will not tolerate this nonsense anymore. But I also think ultimately what it may require, and again, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues about this, is two things. One, where the examples get so utterly ridiculous that everyone says... This is so ridiculous we can't accept it. And I think MIT crossed. I think the barrier. MIT got there. Yeah, yeah I think I, I think MIT. And that's one example. But when that I means if you're a
1: working scientist and you can't give a scientific lecture because of your political views, that's a warning sign to anybody.
0: Yeah. In and any the, science, right? And that yeah, exactly. And that's that's a clear example. By the way, it happens and, and, and it's it already does happen and it's not unique. I've known a lot of the example, but this one at least had become publicized. Um uh um, I, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I had a similar experience at MIT once, as a matter of fact, a few years ago. Um, but the other is, I ultimately, and you already, you already alluded to this. I think when enough faculty realize that this can really happen to them, not because of anything extreme they might do, but just because of what they may do in their everyday jobs, that they are they are, are threatened. Um, that eventually and when enough of them do that then 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 enough people will speak up but it's going to it's got to require there's a, I remember we my institute once ran a thing on sort of uh, that had to do with revolutions and you know and someone had done an interesting study at MIT actually that that if you look at sort of political revolutions if you can get 2 to between 3 to 5% of the population actively engaged that's it it's over and and i and yeah, so
1: yeah there's support for that in literature we we have to wrap this up but yeah the one way to think about the whole big question is that we're asking and that i ask in the constitution of knowledge and in kindly inquisitors is can liberal societies defend themselves yeah and and then, it's always a question and right the, the way um, yeah it's
0: always a question and i think look i know we have i know you have to go maybe we'll continue so, uh, uh, on we'll see but i think the bottom line is and i often say this is that you know um the only hope I can think of is that is for people to speak out effectively. I, you know, As an educator, I believe in education, and that's why I think it's so important. That's why I think your books are so important, besides being excellent. Well, if and that's why I wanted that, to talk to you. If I
1: could build on that thought on the way out the door,
0: the big goal of the Constitution of Knowledge
1: is to remember these, these people, these activists, These information warriors their goal is to demoralize you because Mm. demoralization is demobilization which is what we're describing you can pacify an entire population even if there are only a few of you if you can convince them that resistance is futile
0: yeah
1: and that can break down very quickly so liberal societies have proved again and again against the odds and against all predictions that they could eventually rise to their own defense people said you know hitler Look, powerful army, he works at force of command, he doesn't have cumbersome processes like Congress. You know all these stories. Mm -hmm. Well, it takes a lot of hard work by some brave people to stand up, but we know that we win when we do because we have something to offer. We have the system that put the vaccine in my arm that's protecting me right now. These people who are attacking you and other professors and the academic world have nothing except a plan for them to dominate the dialogue. Which, by the way, they think constitutes social justice. If they can all get us us all talking in a certain way, that will solve the problems of terrible education in African-American communities. So we know that's not true, right? So if we band together, if we get this right, if we understand the constitutional knowledge and rise to its defense, they're not 10 feet tall. We are. We squash them like a bug. Yeah. But first, we have to take those initial steps.
0: Yeah, we have to, and writing books and discussing them, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it here. And and also getting people to recognize their own misconceptions, pointing out, as you do in your book, uh, very eloquently, that it's sure, you may have a good intent, but your definition of social justice, what if someone else, I mean, exactly the same argument, People, people, you can't allow one group of people to say, we know what's right, because whenever you do that, even if they're well-intentioned, You end up with the problem of who determines what's right and inevitably you're going to be on the wrong side of that and you're going to regret that result so i think uh look it's been great to talk and um i know you have to go but thanks for thanks for the discussion thanks for writing and i look forward to both maybe some more um i uh, hope so recorded discussions and also some private ones. I look forward to getting together next time I'm watching.
1: I, I love that. I, I loved every minute and I loved learning a little bit of physics too. So well,
0: Good. Well, I learned a lot from both ways. We got you have Maxwell's be- equations in here. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again. You take care. <laughs> take have care. a good evening. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.